This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So, the beginning of Pasha's Matos, this week's Pasha, talks about Nidorim. Anyone you know what Nidorim means? Promises. People make promises all the time. And we have to keep our promises. Our word has to be a word. I think one of the most important things in a relationship, whether it's a business relationship, or a friend relationship, or a husband and wife relationship, or a father-son relationship, whether a mother-daughter or mother-son relationship, parent-child, is you got to keep your word. It's the most important thing in the world. I don't know if this is a true story or not, but someone told me that he met this guy that was like totally off the derech, and he met him in business, and he wasn't religious at all, and he was telling in business, he was telling this religious person that I used to be religious too, I went to yeshiva. So he said, what happened? He said, my rabbi in eighth grade promised that any boy who learns a hundred Mishnahs by heart will get a baseball bat. And he never got me that baseball bat. And I called him, and he kept promising, and he never delivered. And I figured if the rabbi who teaches me Torah doesn't keep his word, then the word, which is the Torah, probably isn't true. And he walked away from the whole thing. Whether that's a true story or not, I don't know. But I was told this story. A person's word... It's very important. If you promise a kid they're going to get a prize, you got to deliver the prize. If you promise a kid if they do something and get punished, you got to keep the punishment. Because once your word is not a word, then the kid doesn't know when you, may, when you mean it, when you don't. So a person's word is very important. And therefore, the Torah, this week's Pasha begins that if a person makes a neda or a shvua, a promise or, a, or he swears, that he has to keep it. But he has a chance if he wants to break what he promised, he can go in front of a bezdin. And like we do at Taras Nadarim, before Rosh Hashanah, before Yom Kippur, and the Bezdin can annul his promise. A husband who hears his wife make a promise, that day he can annul, he doesn't have to go to Bezdin. He can also annul that, that promise. There's Mayfair Nether, there's Hitter Nether, two different kinds, but one is done by rabbis, one is done by, 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 by a husband of a wife. So, we see from here that a person's words the difference between an animal and a human being is a person's mouth, is a person's words that come out of his mouth. Animals can't speak. We can. And therefore, a person's mouth is a very powerful weapon, and we know that the uh, Chavetz Chaim wrote many svarim about the talking of Lashonara. Even a nuclear bomb, a nuclear missile that the Iranians are building has a range of 1,125 miles. That's pretty far for a, for a missile. But a person's mouth has a range. I could say right now, Lushen Har, about someone in Israel that you know. Israel is how far? 5,000 miles away? And destroy him. Um, more, than, more, than, more than you can shoot a gun. More than you can shoot an arrow. More than you can use a sword. A person can destroy a person across the world. A person can destroy a person in the other world. Guy died already. And you talk Lushen Har on him. He's not even within a million miles of here. And you can destroy him. You could talk Lashon Hara and his kids won't get a shit up because you said things about him. He's not even alive anymore. So Lashon Hara, the power of the mouth, is an awesome power. An awesome power. And I want to tell you a very fascinating story on this week's parasha brought down by the Avas Chaim. And I've said this story before. A while ago, I don't know if you guys have heard it. It's an amazing story. It's a, it's a little bit scary, the power of speech and the power of what you do in this world. You have to know that what a person does in this world... That's what you are in the next world. Because the next world you don't have Bechira, you have no choice. What you are in this world is what you are in the next world. And it's brought down in the Kavayashar, 
that's very scary, that when a person does wrong in this world, in the next world, everybody knows about it. And he has a busha. He has an embarrassment forever. Here you get embarrassed and you go into your closet, you know, or you get out of town or you leave to another country. In that world, everything's loyal and void. Everything's forever. Forever. So if you're embarrassed, it's not like you're embarrassed and the embarrassment stops. The embarrassment goes forever and ever and ever. We don't understand what that word means, forever and ever, because we live it. We live in a world of what? Right, right. In the other world, every, right. So, so, so a person's a, a time, we don't understand forever. What does that mean? Because our time is finite. One minute, one second, one hour, one day, one month, one year, one decade. What does it mean? So, so someone said, if you want to get an idea, if you want to get an idea what forever is, if you took a straw, if you took a straw, and you had to drink all the oceans in the world, how long that would take, that's not forever. If you went to the beach, and you had to take every kernel, every single grain of sand, in the whole world, every grain of sand you had to pick up, that's not even forever. So it's a long time. Because that would take a long, long time. A million, trillion, zillion, whatever amount of years. That's still not forever. It's still not forever. So this embarrassment is forever, says the Kavayashar. That a person who speaks lush and horror in this world, he talks bad about other people, or he's a liar, or he's a sketcher. He sells, you know, electronics, and he tells the people, you know, I'm selling you uh, warranties and guarantees that don't exist, and he ropes them in, and he, he thinks it's a big joke, and it's a big game. Yeah, yeah. We're in the basement, and we steal from everybody. We tell them all kinds of stories. We sell them things that are, that are, that are, that are rebuilt, and we tell them that it's new. Nobody here. I'm just talking about such people, the Goyim that exist that would do something like that. So in the next world, these people are liars. So in the next world, they walk around and their tongue, their tongue, says the Kavayosha, is a long tongue that they have to schlep. They have to pull. And it's black. And every, every neshama in the other world sees this tongue and knows, oh, that's a person who used his tongue for the wrong reasons, who spoke lies and Lashon or whatever it is. And every aver, every limb in a person's body that he uses for the wrong thing turns black and becomes very long that everybody can see that's his cherpa, that's his embarrassment. Everybody knows by that aver, by that limb, what aver he did on this world. It's very scary. You listen to Lashon Hara, you have an ear that you have to schlep. You look at the wrong things, your eyes, you have to schlep. It's not a joke. And he talks about different things that I want to get into of, 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 of Nebuch, people hanging in Gehenna by those limbs that they used for the wrong reasons. And Kaviyasha talks about it. It's not a secret. You can look it up and you can see it. And beside, and he says, interesting, he says, the Gehenna is not the fire. You think they put you into a fire. The Gehenna is the embarrassment that you can't hide from your parents and your grandparents and Moshe Rabbeinu and Avraham and Yitzhak and Yaakov and Yosef and all the tzaddikim in the world. Everybody sees this terrible kharp or this terrible embarrassment that a person has in the other world. So he brings down a story, and he says, he says, the neshama in the other world has, a neshama has spiritual body parts the same as your physical, it's a mirror. It's pretty weird, it's pretty wild. When you're walking around, there's a, there's a copy of you, but in the, in the spiritual world. Same you, same way you look. That's why when you dream of a person, when a person comes to you in a dream from the other world, a father or a grandfather, you see them. Why don't you see uh, some fire with a talus on it, with some fiery eyes? No, because because the, the neshama of a person is a copy of him, 
that that looks exactly like him. And there are people that are able to look at a person and see the outline, that halo, that outline on the goof of the person, and they can see how cuttish the person is by how light it is. You have to be a big tzaddik, a big gadol to be able to see that. But you can do it sometimes if you want to see your neshama. You can look at your hands sometimes, and you can see around your fingers like a, a something like a little fuzz that's coming off your fingers that's going around your fingers if you look at it very carefully. That's your energy. That's that's your soul, part of your soul. Yeah, your whole goof is also is also built spiritually. Okay, don't spend the rest of the year looking at your hands. <laughs> but really, if you really want to see it really clearly. You have to look at your big toe. No, I'm kidding. Okay. So everybody's going to take off their shoes and put them on the table. No. But seriously, it's not a joke. If you really look at your hand, if you look at your hand, you'll see, you have a chance to look at it for a little while, you'll see like a little outline of your, around your fingers. That's your, what they call your life source. Your life source is actually your neshama. Okay. Anyway, we're not going to do tricks tonight. So, it says like this. There's a story with Rav Levi, and he was a mile. Rav Levi was a mile. And he used to do bris meal on children. No. One time, his daughter gave birth to his grandson. And it came in the morning. And the Rav Levi used to do the mila the first thing in the morning. Came in the morning. And all the chassidim came. And they finished davening. And they went to the house of his daughter to be mile his grandson. And they had everything ready. And Rav Levi, who was very into doing the mitzvah, always doing a mitzvah as fast as you can, he told everybody, you have to wait, I'll be back, I'll be back in a couple of minutes. And he went into his room, and he closed the door, and he didn't come out for four hours. So they're all sitting there with the baby, all the people came for the bris and the, and the party, right? And the Rebbe, who usually is in a big rush, he's in a room, he doesn't come out for four hours. No, so everyone was starting to go crazy. Mishtageya. They were losing their patience. When is he going to come out? Anyway, so they were losing their minion. They didn't have a minion left. So finally, there was mamish like 12 people left. And Rev. Levy came out of his room. And he was happy with a big smile on his face. And he did a brismila on the child. And he got up to name the child. Now, of course, when you name the child... So the father of the baby whispers into the person who's giving the name, the name. But Rev. Levy didn't wait. His own son-in-law, he didn't wait to hear what name he wanted to give. He named the kid on his own, Yehuda Leib. Which was not right. You have to ask the father what name you want to give, right? Okay, so his son-in-law went over to him. He was very upset. And he had a different name. He wanted to give a different name. The Rebbe gave him a name without asking him. So he was quiet. He was a good son-in-law. And after the Milo, so his son-in-law came over to me and said, Rabbi, i got to ask you two questions. One, why did you make us wait for four hours? That's not like you. And two, why did you call me Hudalev? Who's Hudalev? I don't know any Hudalev. You just come up and give my son a name? Where, where did that come from? So he says the following story. He said, when I was coming to your house, I saw a black cloud. And I saw that in this black cloud, there was something going on. A rash gadol. Big disturbance. Something was going on in that cloud. So he said, I, I did it. I, I went into this room and I wanted to see what's going on. What's, what's going on in this cloud? So I went into whatever the Rebbe did 
to get into his uh, Kabbalah state. And he said, I went to the other side of the curtain in Shemayim. And I said, what's going on? What's the tumult? And they said, down on earth, a big tzaddik just died. And his name was Rabbi Yehuda Leib from the city of Apta. And there were many tzaddikim that were coming out of Ganeiden to meet him with, with tupim, macholos, with, with tambourines, whatever that means. Because they said a big tzaddik is now coming to Ganeiden, Rabbi Yehuda Leib, me Apta. Now we know that every tzaddik, no matter who you are, when you, when you leave this world, even if you're going to Ganeiden, you have to go through Gehenna. The way to Ganeiden, to Ganeiden is through Gehenna. Not that you have to, that, that the tzaddik has to go through the fire of Gehenna. It's sort of like a bridge. You have to go over Gehenna. Why does a tzaddik have to go, what do you do? Why does he have to go over Gehenna? Because even though he's a big tzaddik, maybe he could have saved some of those people that were in Gehenna. So even on his way to Gan Eden, a Jew has to see the other Jews that are suffering. Now you would take an unbelievable lesson. As great as you are, you deserve to go to Gan Eden, but you need to see your brethren that's suffering. Because maybe, maybe if you would have reached out, you would have saved one of them. So there's a little pain, even for the biggest tzaddik when he goes to Gan Eden, because he has to see his brothers suffering. Understand? It's like, that's how much we have to be into each other's suffering, how we have to feel and care about other Jews. Anyway, so the, the, the Rav, the Rebbe, is watching this whole thing. And he sees this big tzaddik of Yehuda Leib from Apta. He's, he's walking across this bridge to go to Ganeiden. And all of a sudden, he jumps off the bridge into Gehenna. Yehuda Leib jumped into Gehenna. Now, Yehuda Leib was a big tzaddik. There can't be a fire. So the minute he jumped into Gehenna, they had to turn off all the fires. So the whole Gehenna became quiet. So now... The, the Malach of Gehenna said, <laughs> get out of here. I got, I got to have these fires on. You can't jump into my Gehenna without Rishus. What are you doing in my Gehenna? I need to turn the fires on. I can't turn the fires. Get out of here. So he said, he said, I'm not getting out of here. Listen to this. I'm not getting out of here until I take Jewish souls with me out of hell. To Ganeiden, to heaven. So the Mark said, who do you think you are? Who, who gave you a shush to come to my, to my place of business where I have all these souls and you're telling me that you're not leaving until you take souls with you? I'm not giving you a melody. No, I'm no way. So, <laughs> so he said, okay, I'm not leaving. So we're at a standstill. Meanwhile, the fires of Gehenna are off and all the people that were suffering are not suffering anymore. So the Malach realized he had a problem here. This, this rabbi is not leaving until he takes some souls with him. So he was, of course, who does he work for? He works for the Satan. Who does the Malach? They're all partners, guys. They get you to do that. They're, they're very nice guys. They tell you they're your friend. They get you to look on the screen that you're not supposed to look at or look at the girl crossing the street. And they're saying like, hey, 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 you saw that? Yeah, huh? Let's go do an Avera. Right? And I'm your best friend. And don't worry about it. That's the same Satan that runs up, rats on you right away to God. You know what he did? 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 Right? And then he takes you and puts you into Gehenna. This is your buddy. So, the Satan ran to Hashem and said, we got a problem. There's a rabbi in the middle of hell. And he's not getting out. The fires are off. And the fires are supposed to be on. We want him out, Hashem. 
And the Rav, the, the, the Rav said, I, I already made a promise. I made an ed there. That I'm not leaving here until I take people with me. So they had a problem now. You can't make the Rav break his ned there. So Akash Baruch Hu said like this. God said, listen. If his word wasn't the word on this world that we're in right now. And he lied. And he made up things. So then we can make him break his promise in that world. So we're gonna, even though he promised he's not going to leave Gehenim until he takes souls with him, we can make him a liar. Because he is a liar. Because in this world he lied. But if the whole time he was in this world, this rabbi, Yehuda Leib, never ever said a lie, then we're not allowed to make him lie in this world either. Because he's a truthful person. So let's open up his books. And let's see if he ever lied when he lived on earth. And as it says, they checked him out. And they found that he never lied. So Kosh Baruch Hu said, being that he never lied, he can't, we can't make him a liar here. And therefore, the Malach, you have to let him take souls out of Gehenna. Okay? So the question is, how many? So they asked Hashem, how many does he get? Omar Kosh Baruch Hu. God said, Let's open up the book of how many people he saved on this world. However many Jews he saved in this world, we'll let him save in that world. So they looked it up and they found that he saved 220. 220 Jews he saved. So, they gave him permission to save 200, and you know what that means? 220 souls that were in hell. Free of charge. He could take out why? Because he never lied. And on this world he saved 220 souls. No, Malach said Rabbi Yehuda Leib. So what did Rabbi Yehuda Leib say? The Malach came back and the Malach said, Okay, you win. We can't make you a liar because you weren't a liar in this world. We can't make you a liar in the other world. Okay, you could take out. God said 220. He went down to the seventh level in Gehenna. Everyone thinks that you can only spend 11 months in Gehenna. That's on certain levels, but there's a level called the Tehoim of Gehenna, the bottom of Gehenna, which is the seventh level, which you're there forever. Those are life. They get their lifers. They're stuck in Gehenna, whatever, maybe one day I'll tell you they have various, they get a person into that place, but that's a place with Kaddish, with yard site, with everything you can do, they're stuck there, they can't get out. That's where they're stuck for life. It's life imprisonment. So he went, who the lay said, what am I going to do? I'm going to take out Nefashis, Nishamas that are going to get out after 11 months. That's silly. So he went down to the seventh level of Gehenna and he took out two, well, we'll see what he took out. So he goes there. Instead of taking 220 out of the seventh level, he takes 440. He was only allowed to take 220. He took 440. Okay? No, he comes to the gate. So the Malach, of Yehadim says to him, Ma'ata what are you doing? You took double. So they went back to Shemayim and they said to Hashem, uh, you said 220, he took 440. So listen to what said. So now we have to look into his book again and see why he only saved 220. If he only saved 220 because he died young, and because he didn't have enough money to save more, and he really wanted to save more, then you have to let him save double. 
If he was happy with himself and he said, wow, I saved so many people, I don't need to do it anymore, then he can't take more than 220. They went and they looked and they saw that his biggest sorrow of being sick and dying was that he wasn't able to save more. That he was dying. If you gave me more years and more money, I could save more people. That's why he didn't want to die. Not because he wanted to go to another movie, he wanted another glass of grape juice or a bottle of beer or another cigarette. He didn't want to die because he wanted to save more Jews. So Hashem said, if that's the reason, then you have to let him take double. And Kachaya, he took 440 neshamas, 440 souls from the deepest part of Gehenna, and he brought them into Ganeiden. Why was he able to do that, boys? Because his word was a word. A person's word has to be a word. If you want Hashem's word to be a word, your word has to be a word. That's the way it is. Because everything is midah, keneged midah. If you're MS, then everything around you is MS. Because word is a word. It doesn't change. But if you want his word, if you want him to give you a bracha, and Rosh Hashanah, you want him to put you in the Sefer HaChayim, then your word has to, you have to be honest. You have to, your word has to be a word. If your word is not a word, so then when you dive in, who says your word is a word? They're going to say, in business he was a crook. So how can we trust him what he's saying? I love you, Hashem, with my whole heart, my whole soul. Yeah, he's full of baloney. He's sketching. He's trying to sell you something, Hashem. His word is not a word. Person's word has to be a word, and if your word is a word on this world, it gives you a very big koyach on the next world. I was invited three years ago to a community where they were having a huge problem in a shul that everybody was talking, and they said that they had all kinds of rabbis that got up and spoke. Halachas, mishnabura. You're not allowed to talk by davening. The importance of not talking by davening. The lack of derech eretz of talking by davening. The chutzpah to Hashem to be talking by davening. And no matter what rabbi got up, Rabbi Wallstein, they still talk. So we're inviting you to come and to stop the talking. I'm like, what am I going to say that these other rabbis didn't say? So now we heard you're, you're tough. You got to come in. You got to let them have it. So I started preparing and I looked at all the svarim. There's a crazy amount of svarim on, on the destruction of talking and what it does and everything else. And I'm I like, they heard this already. They heard this already. Anyway, Hashem sent me a little message, and this is what I told them. It took me five minutes. Baruch Hashem, it's now two years or three years, and there is no talking in this shul. There's no talking in this shul at all. I'll tell you what I told them. I said, listen to me. Ladies and men, because the ladies were talking on the side of the nashim, and the men were talking on the side of the men. They weren't talking to each other, but the women were talking to the women. The men were talking. I told them the following. I said, listen. He said, one day you're not going to be in this world anymore. You're going to have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. We'll hope you die after you have great-great-grandchildren. You'll live till you're 90 and 100 years old. He said, they're going to bury you in Harmanuchos in Israel. Maybe Harzaisim, maybe New Jersey. Wherever, wherever they're going to bury you, they're going to bury you. He said, you're going to have this beautiful granddaughter. And she's going to have problems finding a shidduch. So she's going to go, Erev Yom Kippur, to her Zaydi's grave. And she's going to cry, Zaydi, Zaydi, please, Zaydi, I love you. Go to Shemayim, you're such a tzaddik. Go talk to Hashem, I need to get married, I'm 33 years old. And I can't find the Shidduch. Zaydi, Zaydi, I have no children. Go in front of the Kisei covered, Bobby, my grandmother, Safta, Saba. Go to Hashem. And daven for me, I can't have children. 
I don't have, I can't make a parnasa. There's a whole safer called Shari Dima. All these different prayers, you go to your father's grave, your grandfather's grave, your grandmother's grave. I said, and you're going to see your grandchildren standing by your grave. They're going to bring you the Shama down. And they're going to be begging you, go in front of Hashem, help me. I can't make a parnasa. I can't get married. I can't have children. And you, because the Neshama is emotion. That's what, we, what it's made out of. It's your grandchild or maybe your child. And you're going to go up and you're going to say, Tanamalach, I want to go in front of Hashem. I have a granddaughter. She's 33 years old. She's not married. I have a child married 12 years. They don't have children. And they're asking me to go to Hashem. I want to go to Hashem right now and I want to beg Him. I'm close. I'm up here. And the mouth is going to say, You? You can't go to Hashem. When you were supposed to go to Hashem, you were busy talking. Now you can't go to Hashem. person who talks in shul, it says, can't go in front of the Kisah Kavar. I said, this, this neshama is already out of hell, out of Gehenna, 30 years. Now it's right back into Gehenna. Because to see its grandchild or its child or its great-grandchild davening, that that neshama should go in front of Hashem and daven, and the malachim are never going to let you get near Hashem. You are the chutzpah, that when it came to davening, you were talking? Now you want to daven? Go talk. Go to your friends and talk. To Hashem, you're not talking. I said, is there anyone in this room that feels that talking in shul is worth losing your voice in the next world? Not having a lips, not having a mouth, not having a tongue. Not being able to, to daven for Klai Yisrael, to daven for your children, for your wife, whatever, whoever you have to daven for, you're in the next world, this is the biggest Gehenim. Because you spoke here, you can't speak there. Oh yeah. Mida, can I get Mida? It brings down. That was the end of that. Because every person that sits, says, okay, I'm a big mouth, I love to talk, but I'm not going to do this to my children, my grandchildren. I want to have the power that after 120 years, I'll be in Shemayim, that I, that I, that I, that in Shul I never spoke. They'll have the power to daven to Hashem. To have that closeness with Hashem in the next world. If you talk by davening, you're going to lose it. Speech is a very precious thing. Look at the power that we see over here. That by speaking, he had the koyach of, of pulling out. you know what that is? 440 souls from the deep of the deep of hell. It's amazing, amazing story. Therefore, said Rav Yitzhak Halevi to his son-in-law, when I saw this Rav, this Yehuda Leib Me'apta, when I saw that he was so great that he had the power of pulling out 440 neshamas, of course, that's the name I wanted to give to my grandson. And that's why it took me four hours. I was watching this whole thing unfold. And that's why I gave this name to my grandson. Boy, speech, speech. You have to be so careful what comes out of your mouth. That's why Akash Baruch Hu gave us two guards on our mouth. Everything else has one guard. You have your eyelids. You have your earlobes. But your mouth has to have teeth and lips. Because it's such a dangerous thing that they had to put, it's such a precious thing, Dibor, that they had to put two gates on it. The more precious, you know, you have a, you have money in the house, jewelry, so you put it in the safe, and then you put a picture on top of that, and it's in the closet with your clothes on top of the closet, right? The more, the more it's worth, the more, so that if you want to look at your body and see what is the most valuable part of your body. So if you want to know the most valuable part of your body, you look for the part of your body that has the most safeguards, because that must be the most valuable part of your body. What part of your body has the most safeguards? Your mouth. It has lips and it has teeth. It has two sha'arim, two gates. So that is talking the most powerful thing. You could talk by davening and ruin everything and you could daven by davening and kol kol yako. That's our, that's our strength. 
Tzilah is our strength, our mouth is our strength. So that's, this parasha begins and it talks about the, the, the power of the mouth. At the end of the parasha, at the end of the parasha, it's something hard to understand and I can't really make a judgment because I didn't, I wasn't there in those days. But you know, after the whole thing with the, um, with the Miraglim and the Jews being wiped out in the 40 years because they went to Eretz Yisrael and they came back and they said, let's not go into Eretz Yisrael. Something very interesting happened. What happened in Periglamid Bay's lave? Umikne Rav, Ruben, God. The shaman of Ruben and the shaman of God had a huge amount of cattle, animals. Vayiru was Eretz Yazir, but Eretz Gilad. And before they got into Israel, on the Jordanian side of Israel, they saw that the land was unbelievably good for grazing. So they had the chutzpah to come to Moshe Rabbeinu and say, we don't want to go to Israel. After everything that happened. We want to stay here. We want to have, we have all these animals. We need grazing. The power of money, boys. And they came, they came to Moshe Rabbeinu, these two shvatim, two and a half shvatim. And they said, we want to build corrals, barns, for our sheep and our flock. And we want to build cities for our children. You hear the power of money? They came to Moshe Rabbeinu and they said, we want to build barns for our animals and then cities for our children. Meshugam, who do you build a house for first? Your dog or your children? What are you talking about? They came to Moshe Rabbeinu. We want to build barns for our animals and then we'll build houses for our children. Power of money. They were so into their money that they forgot their families. We need to build barns. You know what I mean? We got to make sure that we have a big garage for my, for my two Cadillacs and a big pool in the back so I can go swimming, right? And a big screening room downstairs for all our movies. And oh, we also need a bedroom for the kids. <laughs> this is, this is what was going on over here. Because money corrupts. I'll, I'll tell you something that I, that I always say by picking out bands. I'm a coin. And I'm a dangerous Kayan, very dangerous Kayan. Because by a pigeon at Ben, the Kohen asked the father, what do you want more, your child or these five silver dollars? And the father says, unless the kid was really cranky, the father says, I would like to have my child. I don't want the five silver dollars, I want to have my child, right? Now, most fathers think it's a big joke, because if they say, I'd rather have my money, right? The client's not taking home the kid. He doesn't want to sit up all night and change the diaper, right? <laughs> but I'm dangerous because I only have daughters. So if he says I'd rather have the money, I'm out of there with the boy. I don't got no boys, you know what I mean? So I'm like the most dangerous client because if he says I'd rather have the money, I'm out of there. I'll take the kid, no problem. So I always warn them, with me, you better answer right away. You want the kid because, uh, hello, I'm out of here with your kid. So the question is, the question is, what kind of silly question is that? What kind of silly question is that? First of all, if he's going to tell in front of his wife, he's going to say, I'd rather have the money, she's going to kill him. He's dead, right? And, and, and what father's going to say, I'd rather have the five silver dollars than my child? So why is the claim asking him this question? It's a silly question. You get up in front of everyone. What do you want? You want the child or do you want the, all the five dollars? And he says, I want the child. Wow, we're all shocked. We're like in a big surprise. We got a whole party. We want to pick you Ben. If you're going to keep the money, there's no party. You know what I mean? You know, it's a, <laughs> this whole thing is a waste of time, right? So why does the client do this? So it's a very beautiful answer. Because this is the, by picking Ben, it's always the first male child, right? It's the first child. 
a person, anything that's first, he thinks it's yadi. He thinks it's it's his. I made it. You know, your 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 first car, your first house, your first everything, it's your first wife. You know, it's all like you know, it's my, it's my. It's my, that just flew over. It's my kayak, you know, I got this done, I did this, you understand? Everything first, that's why we have a din of Bikurim. We have a din of Bikurim, because a person, when he has the first fruit, he tries to not on it, because that apple, that first fruit, the first of the seven meaning, whatever it is, wow, it's because I planted, because I picked the right property. So, Hashem wants you to give up that first thing, to show that you know it comes from HaKadosh Baruch There's a certain... Precious thing about something first. That's why middle children, you know, you know, the, the oldest one, you know, he's the first. But why does the first get, the Bukhari gets double in the title? Why does the Bukhari get double? Because the parents never had a child before. So they, 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 they experiment on that first kid, Nebuch, right? Second kid, anyone, anyone who's an oldest kid knows what I'm talking about. I'm not, I'm the middle kid. So they experimented on my brother. By the time they got to me, Baruch Hashem was easy. They knew all their mistakes. They knew everything, you know. Should we hit them? Okay, let's try to hit them. If it doesn't work, then we know we shouldn't hit them, you know. And they experiment. So by the time they get to you, the second guy, you're, everyone says middle child syndrome. Forget middle child syndrome. Middle child syndrome is good because they did all the experimentation on the older guy. You're already pretty much in good shape, you know. And as it goes down the line, by the ninth kid, they tried everything on everybody. By the ninth kid, they usually have it right. You know what I'm saying? Usually by the ninth kid, they have it right. He usually turns out really spoiled, but like a good kid, you know, because they have it all right, you know. Kids are good until they have parents. Or maybe it's the other way around. Okay, I'm not sure. But anyway, so we as a Kayin have to have the father, we have to ask him a major question. It's his first child. He's going to have Mitchem a lot more children. We have to ask him, Mister, you have to know, you have to, you have to make an announcement in front of everyone right now. What is more important in your life? Your child or your money? What I am asking the father is, what do you want more, this child or your money? What are you going to do in your life? You're going to go to work all day and forget about that you have a kid? Is everything going to be about money? And you're going to be coming home at night, you're going to be on the phone, my stocks, my this, my that. Is it all going to be about money? Or is it about your kid? And the father has to get up and say in front of everyone, I don't want the money, I want my child. And once you put that in to his teva, into his nature in front of everybody, that his first child, he's telling the world, I, I, it's not about money, I want to take care of this child, then we know that all the other children are going to be taken care of correctly. And that's why the client asks him in public, what is more important? He's asking, what's more important to you, your money or your child? And he has to know that our, our children are the most important things. Money comes and money goes, but a child is yours forever. you got to give him time. And I'm as guilty as everybody else. I remember when I was married, I first got married, so I said to myself, even then I told my wife, I can't wait to have my first child. Because I'm going to take that child, we're going to go to the Bronx Zoo on Sundays. And we're going to go to the park every night I come home. And I'm going to teach that child how to ride a bicycle, and play baseball, and play football, and play hockey. And then I got a girl, okay, whatever. <laughs> and, you know, and play with dolls, I guess, I don't know, whatever. But, but no, but seriously, but seriously. Well, Hashem, I have daughters, whatever. But you have, you have this in mind that you're, that you're going to give all this time to your children. And then when you have them, you have no time for them. You're busy. You're running around. And then all of a sudden, you realize your whole life went by, and you didn't give them any time at all. You were so busy, you gave them no time at all. And they're the most precious thing because they're an extension of you. So a person has to realize that he has to make time for his children. And... It's not an amount of time. 
it's undisturbed time. To take your kids to the Bronx Zoo and to the aquarium and to be on your cell phone the whole time when you're with your kids, that's not, oh, I give my children a lot of time. Or going to a baseball game and screaming at the Yankees the whole time when your kid's sitting next to you and the kid's like, who's that player? Shut up. I got to watch you. Keep quiet. Don't, you're disturbing me. I'm never taking you again. Hey, Rabbi Wallace, you know, I took my kid to a baseball game. And the kid's like, please don't take me again. Please. That's not, that's not giving them time. Or taking them out to a restaurant, right? And, and the whole time you're on your cell phone or your friend comes by and you're busy talking to him and your kid's sitting there. Tati, shush, quiet. I'll, I'll get to you in a few minutes. But Tati, quiet. Tati, I dropped the whole soup on my feet and I'm burning. Okay, two minutes, two minutes. Okay. I'll be there in two minutes, right? So then you come home and you tell your therapist, you tell your therapist, you know, I give my wife a lot of time. I take her out all the time. And she's like, you take me out, but you don't even look at me. You don't even talk to me. You're talking to your friends on your phone. You're talking to this one on the phone. You went to the movies. You're watching the movie. You don't even know I exist. You're watching the ball game. Yeah, sure. I take her out all the time. You don't take her out all the time. So, so a woman, a wife or a child would tell their parent, don't take me out for four hours. Take me out for four minutes. But I want those four minutes with you. Me and you. No cell phone. No movie. No Yankees. Just me and you. Fishing. Rowboating. I'm serious. Things where you can give your kid time. I thank my father, Oliver Shalom. I thank him. That I had a healthy... Growing up was very healthy for me. Why was it healthy for me? Because my father was a traveling salesman. He used to leave Sunday, go down the whole East Coast to Florida, drive all the way back up, and he used to show up Friday at about 2 o'clock. Didn't see him a whole week. And you would think that I would, I would grow up very dysfunctional. And my father wasn't... Don't say, hey, careful what you say. That happened much later. Anyway. <laughs> but, but, truthfully, but truthfully, you'd think his father wasn't around, right? When I came home from Yeshiva Spring Valley from when I was in first grade, we came home, I got off that bus at 2.15. I came into my house. My father had just gotten out of his car driving from New York to Florida. And it wasn't on today's cars, okay? And Florida back. And he was standing there with a baseball glove and a ball. Let's go play catch. His time that he gave me, there was nobody else in the world but me and him. Or my brother and him. Whatever, whatever, whoever, that time was a focused time doesn't matter how much time that you give somebody. But when you give it, it's got to be whole. Turn off your phone. Turn off your phone. I know it's a very hard thing to say. Turn off your phone. Even my kids, they have time to say, Dad, yeah. you know what? So there are times that I go out with them and I, I turn off my phone. The world won't come to an end. person has to give his children and his wife time that is undisturbed. Focused time. A lot of you guys don't have kids. A lot of you guys are not married. Remember what I'm telling you, because in theory you're all saying, I'm different, man, when I have a kid, we're going to play ball together, we're going to spend time together, but the Yitzhah is very smart, we're going to learn together, Yitzhah is very smart, it gets you busier, busier, and busier, and your most precious resource, which is your child and your wife, are the ones that get the least time. In most of the Shalom bias situations that I deal with, the wife will always tell me the same thing. I just want my husband to talk to me the way he talks to his friends. 
90% of the women that I deal with in Shalom Bias, that is the first line that comes out of their mouth. He gets on the phone with his friend, he's on there for 40 minutes, he's laughing, he's giggling, they're joking, they're nicknaming, they're doing all kinds of stuff. He hangs up the phone, I say, can I speak to you for two minutes? I am so tired, I work so hard today, I gotta go to sleep. <laughs> I can't, I don't have time. 90%! They just wanna be your friend, that's all they want. They just wanna be your friend, just be their friend. They're not asking for crazy stuff. Just give me time, like you give everybody else time. The Atari, make sure that you don't, no, you have no time for that. So it's very, very important. It's very important to give our children and our wives time. And coming from a while, it sounds very silly because uh, I'm here till 2 o'clock every morning. I'm doing tshuva. I'll be out by 1. All right. Anyway. If the father says that I want the baby, the coin, I love it, he gets the baby? Nope. No, because it doesn't belong to the Kayan. It doesn't belong to that Kayan. It belongs to Kahuna. It doesn't belong to that Kayan. He could pick a Kayan to do the pigeon, but he could pick any Kayan he wants. So, what? No. It's in the, it's in the Rishus of a Kayan. It's not a Kayan. The first 30 days of a child's life, it has to be in the, in the Rishus, in the property of Kedusha. So he's in the Rishus of the Kayan, but he is not a Kayan. But, if the father says, I'd rather have the five silver dollars than the child, then it's not a pidgin amen, because he didn't give it to the coin. So that child still did not have a pidgin amen. And the child, who owns the child then? The coin owns the child? The, the child is still in Kedusha until he has the pidgin amen. It's not a question of own them. The coin never owns the child. The coin can't take the child on the 29th day and say it's mine. We never, we don't own the child. It's in our rishus. We don't own the child. Even if the coin has all the daughters? Even if Kain only has daughters. Doesn't make a difference. All right. All right, now it's time to get it over the head a little bit, boys. One question. If the Nishama is part of Hashem, right? We're not going. We're no questions after the share. I can't do. I can't deal with questions very late. I started very late. After the share. Okay. So it says the following. Ruben and God had many, many, she- many sheep. Says the Medrash Rabbah, a very funny word. Halacha. It's a law, which means it's a fact. Three presents were given in this world. If you have one of them, you have all the beauty of the whole world. What are the three presents that Hashem gave to the world? If a person has wisdom, he has everything. If a person has inner strength, he has everything. The person's rich. Zacha, he has everything. That doesn't make sense. A rich man has everything. What does that mean? We know the famous story with the Chavetz Chaim. He got up in a shul. And he said that God could take away all your money in one second. And this man got up and he said, Chavetz Chaim, you're wrong. I I own 50 banks in 50 different countries. It's true God could take away all my money. Each country can go bankrupt, but it can't happen in one second. They can't all 50 go bankrupt in one second. I'm sorry, Rabbi, you're wrong. I have so much money. Billions, it's true, it's a true story. I have billions of dollars. So I, Hashem could take it away from me, but not in one second. 50 banks in 50 different countries can't go bankrupt in one second. So the Chavetz Chaim looked at him and said, I didn't say Hashem will take the money away from you. Hashem will take you away from the money. <laughs> and that only takes a second. You have 50 banks? One heart attack, one second, you're dead? You have no banks. You have nothing. I didn't say Hashem has to take the money away from you. Hashem can take you away from the money. And that could happen in one second. 
So what is it saying over here that if a person with strength, he went to work out and he's got muscles, that he has everything? Or if he has money, he has everything? What does that mean? When you know these things came from God, and it came through Torah, then you have everything. But if you think it came from you, you have nothing. And he brings down all kinds of examples, Achitoifel, and Bilam, and the Gebayrim, Shimshin, and Goliath, and how they lost everything, because it didn't come from Hashem, it came from them themselves. So he's bringing this measure down here, by, he's bringing this measure down by money. To tell a person that money doesn't come, is not your thing, money comes from Hashem. How do we know that everything we have in life, everyone in this room should know, that everything we have in life is a present? How do you know that? That it's not yours? How do we know that it's not mine? It's mine! And the answer is, because Hashem can take it away from you at any second. A person's vision, you can see. You can become blind in one second. There are diseases that never a person can become blind. There are accidents that a person can become blind. A person can hear, be an explosion, he loses his hearing. A person can breathe in one second, he's dead, he had a heart attack. Life is a present. How do you know life is a present? It's not yours, because if it's yours, nobody can take it away from you. If it can be taken away from you, translation is, it's not yours. So everything in this world is a matano. Everything a person has in this world is a present. And Hashem can take away that present at any second. And then one of the biggest presents that we have is our enayim, is our eyes. And the reason I'm speaking about the subject, because we're in New York City in the middle of the summer, and I want to talk for two minutes about Shmir Asenayim, about a boy watching what he looks at on a screen, on the streets, in magazines, and all the other things that we're not supposed to look at with our eyes. Because our eyes are a present. I told you once, try to live with your eyes closed for an hour. You go out of your mind. Walk around your house tonight with your eyes closed in the dark for an hour. Bump into things. You'll open them up for a second just to make sure that you can still see. You wouldn't be able to, you go, you go out of your mind. There's, there's a, a guy, there's a person that learns in Rabbi Fisher's shul every night. I see him there every night. He learns with a braille Gemara. He's blind. And every single night he's sitting there with his Gemara, learning through the Gemara with his braille Gemara and some kind of computer. I don't know exactly how it works. But, but, uh, that's how he learns Gemara. And I'm saying to myself, Oy vey, this guy is killing me. He's killing me. He's destroying me. Cause he's blind. And he's not making any excuses. He's sitting there with a Gemara. Feeling his way through the Gemara, and I'm running around with my eyes, and I'm not learning Gemara. What are we all going to answer? They're going to take him out, his Hashem, and say, "Here, you had a person in Brooklyn every single night. He learned. He was blind. You could see, and you didn't learn. Ooh, baby, we're in big trouble." So a person's eyes, a huge matana, it's a huge present to be able to see words, oisies machkimos, to learn Torah, to be able to read God's holy Torah. Be able to look at things that you're supposed to look at. Look at God's name. So I want to read you Kavayasha, Perak Beis. He's bringing down a Zayar. So it's not a story, it's not a story. If you don't believe me, you can take a Zayar out tonight. And Dath Reish Samach Zayin, Gimel, Omad Beis, and Pashish Bakude. And he says the following. Kiesh Bimune Echad Shinikra Patois. There's a Malach out there, and his name is Patos. Why is he called Patos? 
Al Shem Shu Nasha because he gets he 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 talks it into people, to men. This is To look at things, to look at girls and things that you're not supposed to. But in many immoral ways, he looks at things that he's not supposed to. That's what this Malach does. He goes into you, he says, Oh, check that out. Check out that girl on the street. Check out that movie. Check out that picture. Man, you gotta check it out. That's Patos. When you hear that in your head, say, Hey, Patos, I know that's you. You're talking to me. I know you're talking to me. And I'm not listening to you. What does this Malach do? Listen carefully. And after the person dies, and they put him into his grave, and everybody threw the dirt in, and they shoveled all the dirt on you, and I just you in the ground. That's it. That's all you get. Four by four. They don't give you a room on top. They don't give you a room next door. They don't give you a room to park your car. You get a little bit four by four, they squeeze you in, they have a nice day. And everybody who's busy, six by six, it's six feet under. Six feet under. Well, we're not, we're not going down there. We're not going to say how deep it is. But whatever, four by four by six, okay. Right? So they put you into the ground, and that's it. It's over. Just you. And I always tell people, this guy parked in my driveway. He's four inches in my driveway. I'm like, yeah, wait till you're 120. You'll see how much room you get. That's what you're worried about, some guy parked in your driveway? Hey, man, at the end of life, you don't got no driveway. Oh, he built his house, and his brick is two inches in my property. He has to take down the whole wall. <laughs> Don't laugh. I know people that happen to. Take down the wall, or I'm taking you to court. What are you, nuts? Make a guy take down his wall for two inches? They're going to put you in the ground. They're not going to give you two extra inches. The end of life. Think about life. What are you getting so crazy about? In the end, they were all, we're all the same. Anyone in this room who thinks you're living forever... Forget about it. Nobody lives forever. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't live forever. You're not living forever. Abraham Avinu didn't live forever. You're not living forever. Mashiach should come. Not for that reason. Then you'll live forever. Maybe not forever. Maybe you'll die first. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Stay tuned to next week. (laughs) But we're not going to get a lot of room. That's for sure. So you know what, guys? Don't get yourself crazy when he's on my space and that space and the other space. And he's, he parked in my driveway a little bit, and my house a little bit. He stepped on my property. They're trespassing. Calm yourself. Calm, calm your livers. Don't get so excited because they're, they're going to give you, that's all they're going to give you is one grave. And if you call and you say, I want two, I want one next to me that's empty because I like room, they're not going to give it to you. Graveyards don't sell empty graves. They're not going to give it to you. You can't get two. Even if you pay for it. They won't give you two. One, not that two will make a difference. But one, that's all you get. That's the Gansamaisa. That's the whole thing. So now you're in the ground. You're in the ground. Okay. Everybody's going to the Shiva house. Right? Person's buried. Everyone's going to the Shiva house. You know, you want to have a little quiet. You know, you're by yourself in the ground. A couple of worms here and there. Nope. Ba. Yeah, it's very funny now. It ain't so funny then. Okay. <laughs> so this patos comes back to this guy that he got him to look at the wrong things. Says the Zoya. That Neshama who went to the Shiva house, they're talking about him, nice things. Everybody's telling nice things about him. They lit candles. Everybody's throwing their money into the tins. You know? For the Neshama, Eli Nishmas. And the Neshama's in the house. No. Comes this Malach Patois. 
He takes the neshama out of the house and he puts it back into the dead body in the ground. There's a malach. He grabs the body of this dead person. And he breaks the eye sockets, the bone of the eye sockets that's around the eyes. And he takes out the person's eyeballs. The same malach that told you, check out the girl crossing the street. The same malach that told you, check out the magazine, look at the movie. He's coming back. And he's going to take your eyeballs. Says the Zoya. Isn't that some, some scary story that Wallace found? It's a Zoya and Pasha Pekude on the Chumash. And he takes your eyeballs. He breaks your sockets. And he takes your eyeballs. What does he do with them? They judge this person with terrible Yusurim pain and bitter pain. They take his neshama down to the bar. Yud Beis, what's the bar? To a room in Gehenim that's called the bar, which is very low, one of the, hot, the, 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 the toughest levels in Gehenim. And in that bar, in that hole that they take him, there are many snakes and scorpions. But there are no snakes and scorpions in the next world. So what does that mean? There are many snakes and scorpions, says the Zoyar. These are malachim of pain. They grab this person. And they hurt him. With, and they, they, they give him a lot of pain. Hashem should have rachmanas on him. You hear? matana, a present that Hashem gave every one of us. If you use it wrong, you lose it. You lose those eyes. And I don't know. I didn't learn the Zayar. I'm scared a little bit to learn the Zayar. If that person can come back when Mashiach comes, if he'll come back with eyes. Because he lost his eyes. And you should know that it's brought down in Kabbalah. I want you to know this. That when you look at a girl... When you look at a girl, besides the tumor that comes into your eyes by what you see, and your eyes are the window to your neshama, what a person sees, you should know, is recorded in your brain and can never be taken out. And that's why it says that when a person, it actually happened to me, I was playing football and I was knocked unconscious. And I remember very clearly that my whole life, when I saw myself from when I was born, everything that my eyes ever saw were replayed in my brain. I was about 10 years old when this happened. And I thought it was hours that I was out. And my father, who was playing football with me at the time, was trying to wake me up. And he said I was, I was out for maybe a minute. I saw my whole life. Because everything that goes into your eyes is recorded in your brain. It's not like you could say, uh, I want to erase uh, uh, what I saw yesterday at 10 o'clock. You can't. It's there. You can't erase what you see. So if you think you're going to look at a movie or look at a picture... And then you're going to say, okay, okay, I just saw it and it's gone. It's not gone. It's, it's, it's on a tape. It cannot, it's there forever. And they're going to play that tape. And not only that, but your eyes are the windows to your soul. person with big eyes has big windows. Smart is, is the whole thing. You can tell by a person's eyes, what their kedusha and everything. Eyes don't lie. You know, in Israel, they were teaching the bus drivers when they used to blow up all the buses and the, and the Arabs were getting dressed as Hasidim and as religious people. So how could you tell the difference? So they were teaching the bus drivers in Israel to look at the eyes. Because an Arab's eyes is very different than a Jew's eyes. And an Arab cannot have Jew's eyes, and he can't fake it. 
and and therefore the eyes of a Jew have a certain is a certain window to the neshama. So a person's a person's eyes have to be kaddish, have to be holy. So someone asked me, so Rabbi, what am I going to do with all the girls I looked at and all the pictures I looked at? How am I going to get rid of it? So it says, Kaviyasha says, you should look at Hashem's name as much as you can. Yud Kevav K. And if a person cries, though the tears that he cries washes the windows. But it's a very dangerous thing to look at things you're not supposed to. And he says it very beferish. And he goes on. And he says further that Ari says, that there's an eye for a small bird in the Torah, in the Varam, that's called a Ra'a. It's called a Ra'a. I believe it's a hawk. A hawk eyes is the best eyes of anything in the world. It has unbelievable eyes. I believe it's a hawk. And the hawk is called a Ra'a. And it's called that because it sees from very far. It can see very, very far. Mamash, miles and miles and miles and miles. And, and it says like this, the Chachamim say that it's called because it sees from very far. Umezane biri'asai. It's immoral with its eyes. What does that mean? There's no act. How could it be immoral with its eyes? And the answer is, when a person looks at a girl, or a person looks at pornography or something of that sort, without any act, without doing anything, it satisfies a certain hunger in him. And that's znus. Without doing any act. Just by satisfying, by looking the second time, the third time, she's crossing it, and that satisfy you. If you ever saw, it's a very sick thing, but if you ever see the Goyim in, in New York, right, the girl watchers, they sit there on a wall, and they just watch the women walk by, and, and, and you can see that they're getting satisfaction from it. They're just looking at them. There's a certain znus, there's a certain immorality, znus, that's done with a person's eyes. This bird is able to satisfy itself by looking at the female bird from afar. And it's called a raw. And therefore he says, and therefore, The punishment of a man that looks at women, He will come back in a Gilgal in this bird. And he will suffer. To be in a bird is a terrible suffering. He will suffer terrible tzar. So a person has to be very, very careful not to look at things that he shouldn't. He even brings down in the Kavayosha, it's not my subject tonight, that you shouldn't even look at animals that aren't kosher. You shouldn't look at a pig. It's not good for your neshama. You shouldn't look at animals that are not kosher. But if you do, then when you look at them, you should say, I'm looking at it to, to, to be Mekayim the mitzvah, that you're not allowed to eat that animal. In other words, when you look at an animal like that, it doesn't mean you'll look at a woman and say, I'm being Mekayim some kind of mitzvah. I don't know whatever. <laughs> That's not what it means. But it, but it means that I have to be, I have to clarify that. You understand? Yeah, I, I'm looking at her and I'm not doing an Avera, so it's a mitzvah because I'm not doing an Avera. That's a, no, no. Now you're not allowed to put yourself in that situation at all. But he says very, very clearly that Chatz a person that looks at things he's not supposed to, he's going to pay a very big price. Because your eyes are matana. It's matana that Hashem gave you. It's a present. If you abuse it, you Chatz V'Shalom lose it. Okay, so a story, a story that I've said before, which is, which is an amazing story with this big tzaddik. And I, I didn't bring the right safer with me. I left it at home. I forgot the tzaddik's name, but the, 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 the which safe, the Benish Chai brings down the story, but the story is also brought down from a medrash. They're brought down a little bit different between the Benish Chai and this, but I'm gonna tell you the, the crux of the story. The crux of the story was like this. There was a very, very big tzaddik, and his whole life he never looked at a woman. You should know that the, the, 
Rav David Abba who I go to, Baba Sali's grandson, so he told me that the koyach of the, of the, of the family, of the Abu Chatzeras, is that they don't look at women. In other words, they, don't, they, don't, they won't allow women to come for a bracha or anything. There's, the Shmir Seinayim means they don't look at women. And by not looking at women, it gives you something called the third eye. There, there's, you know, sometimes you go to a, a real tzaddik and he knows everything about you. And he, he can tell you, I know you need this, I know you need that. And you're like, oh man, what do you do, magic? And it's not magic because it's brought down that the less you use your two physical eyes in this world to look at physical things, the more your third eye, which is called your spiritual eye, is able to see. The less you see in the physical world, the more you see in the spiritual world. So a, a tzaddik who sits all day long, and he doesn't see women, and he doesn't go outside, and he's sitting, all he learns is to safer, so his third eye begins to open and be able to see. So when a person walks in, he sees... What, what does the third eye see? It doesn't see physical things. It, see, it sees spiritual things. So a person can walk in, he can say right away, I know you did this, Avera, you have to do chuba on this, you have to do... How do you know, Rabbi? Where, 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 where? And the answer is, Shemir Seinayim. Rabbi never saw a woman, doesn't see women. As much as women want to come, get a bracha this, he won't see women. The Baba Sali will not see women. So that's their koyach. Their koyach is Shemir Seinayim. Shemir Seinayim is, is, a, is a very, very big level of Kedusha. Now, you know that I teach girls. Right, I teach in Ornav, I teach girls, there's a lot of women that I see. So he went to my Rebbe, I said, Rebbe, what am I going to do? I want to have also Ruach HaKadosh, I want my third eye. You know, I want to know what every single guy in this room did wrong today, you know? <laughs> I want to get that third eye, but, but I'm dealing with girls. What should I do? She so said, you have to look past them. When you look at them, you have to look past them. And also, you have to look at Yudke Vavke as much as you can. Because one of the things that cleans a person's eyes and his neshama is looking at Hashem's name. You should have a piece of cloth, and on that, the Yudke, Vovke, in black, it has to be done by a cipher. Or if you see it in a, in a shul, Hashem Summit. And if you look in Svartic, in real Svartic shuls, you'll see that you have the Yudke, Vovke all around the shul. Because the Kubalim, no matter which way you turn, always wanted to look at that name because that cleans your neshama. Rabbi Gamliel, if you go to his room, it's Yudke, Vovke all the way around his room. So that's one of the tikkunim. It's one of the tikkunim also to look at your tits is right. But one of the tikkunim for a person's eyes is to look at Hashem's name. You all have Siddur. And when you daven, Look at that Yudke Vavke. When you close your eyes for Shema, see a Yudke Vavke. As much as you can do it, you go to the mikvah and you're underneath the water, see a Yudke Vavke. That Hashem's name that purifies your soul, that gives you a Kedusha. Anyway, so the story is, there's this great tzaddik. He was an amazing tzaddik. He never looked at a woman. He was holier than holy. One day the Satan came to God, and the Satan said to God, who is the greatest tzaddik in the world? And Hashem said, there's nothing to talk about. This, this tzaddik who sits in shul all day and he learns and he davens, Never saw a woman in his life. He's the most Kaddish dicker person. Said what? Ramaskia Ben. That's right. So that the, what's it called says in the, in his safer. The Medrish, and he was, he was a Gilgal of, he was a Gilgal of somebody that took away David Amelech's wife, the daughter of Shaul. There's a whole, there's a whole Gilgal on that also. But whatever, he was a very big tzaddik. And the Satan said, yeah, he's a big tzaddik, but if I would go down there dressed up as a very pretty woman with perfume, I could get him to do an Avera. Hashem said, no way. They, they had a little bet. And the Satan said, okay, you'll see. Hashem said, okay, Yavrishos, go try. So it says the Satan came down to the shul where he was learning. 
and he put on his best perfume, and he put on his most beautiful, you can imagine, the Sultan's getting dressed up as a girl, he owns all of them in the whole world, right? He knows how to get dressed up and be provocative. So he was being crazy provocative. This man was trying to learn. When he turned to the right, the Sultan was at the right. When he turned to the left, the Sultan was at the left. Every way he turned, the Sultan was bothering him. Finally, he couldn't take it anymore, the Sadiq. So he called his Talmidim. It says in the Ben Ishchai that he did it himself. It says in the Medrash that he called his Talmidim. The Talmidim came and he said, I want you to take two red hot pokers, metal pokers, and I want you to stick them in my eyes and burn my eyeballs out. His Talmidim said, Rebbe, we can't do that. He says, I'm commanding you to do it. There's, there's, there's this woman that keeps bothering me and I don't want to look at her and I, and I'm, I really feel that I'm going to fall. I really feel I'm going to fall. She keeps doing this. I'm going to fall. I'm going to look at her. So I want you to burn my eyes out. So it says they burnt, they burnt his eyes out. And he became blind. And the Satan was in Shemayim. And he came in front of Hashem and he said, That I didn't expect. <laughs> God, you have to do something. I, I, that's not what I was after. I wasn't after him losing his eyesight. You have to do something. So, so it says Hashem sent, Ben Ishkai said, Hashem sent his Malach Rufal. And his Malach Rufal came down and came and he couldn't see so he thought the woman was back so he said get away from me it's not it's not bad enough that I burnt out my eyes you're coming back now to bother me again and the Malach said no no <coughs> I'm not the Satan I'm the Malach of Fall Hashem sent me to give you back your eyes and he said I don't want him I don't want him don't give him back to me so Malach of Fall went back to Hashem and he said he doesn't want his eyes back Shabbat said, go back to him and tell him that he has my word as God that if he takes his eyes back, I will never allow any tests or satan or women. I will protect him that he'll only live the rest of his life with Kedusha. Makrofol came back down and said, Hashem promises you he'll protect you. Just take your eyes back and you'll never have a problem again. And he took his eyes back. That's what it brings down. You hear? You hear how scared a person was? That he had his eyes burnt out, that he shouldn't see. A woman that, that he wasn't going to look at, but maybe he's going to look up for a second. Which brings me to the end of this year, that you should just understand, boys, that you're so holy, and you have such holy souls, every single one. And the Yetzirah wants to take you down. And the fastest way to take you down is to destroy your eyes. Because if you look at the wrong thing, it affects your heart, it affects your neshama, it affects your soul. After 120 years, that patois, that malach, that rasha, it's going to take your eyes out. And throw you into a boring Gehenna. What do you need that for? What are you for, for looking at two minutes at a girl? What? She's gonna be there. She's gonna help you. What are you getting from it already? And, and the Avery is the second look. You know, some guy said to me, what do you want from me? Rabbi, I work in Manhattan. It's not my fault. I walk across the street. A girl in a miniskirt walks across the street. What should I do? I, I, I wasn't looking at her. She walked right in front of me. I'm like, yeah, but look at what it says in Kriyashma. So suru doesn't mean you shouldn't look. It means you shouldn't follow. The first look wasn't your fault, but the second, third, and fourth look was your fault. <laughs> what does susuru mean? It means to follow. That means when your head goes like... <laughs> That's susuru. That is your fault. And that you're going to have to pay for. We're going to say on Tisha B'av, we shouldn't have Tisha B'av, Mashiach should be here. So we're going to read one of the most painful stories in the history of the Jews the Asare Haruge Malchus the ten tzaddikim that were killed Rabbi Akiva with a rake another tzaddik they burnt him in public 
another tzaddik they cut off his head. There was one tzaddik, his name was Rabbi Yishmael Kohen Gadol. Rabbi Yishmael Kohen Gadol, says the Gemara, was the most beautiful man in the world. The Gemara says, not that we can understand what the Gemara is saying exactly, but if you want to know what the Shekhinah looked like, you want to know what Hashem's Shekhinah looked like, look at the face of Rabbi Yishmael Kohen Gadol. That's a big compliment. That's like crazy handsome. Okay? Crazy good looking. Shmuel Klein Gadol was the most beautiful man in the world. And the king who wanted to kill him, his daughter, the princess, saw him. And she fell in love with his looks. And she went to her father and she said, I know you're killing all the rabbis, but this rabbi, he's so gorgeous. I want him for myself. Of course, the king would not let him live. So the king said, no problem. What do you love about him, that he's beautiful? We're going to peel his face, the skin off his face, his lips, his face. We're going to peel it. Then we're going to stuff it. We'll kill him by doing that. And that way, we'll put this doll of his face in your room. And for the rest of your life, you want to look at a pretty face, you look at it. And she agreed. Good idea, Dad. Russia. And as we say, they took his face and they peeled the skin, his whole face. They peeled the skin off his face. And when they reached to the makam of this in his forehead, he let out a scream that the Shemayim shook, and he died. And the Malachim came and said to Hashem, This is how you pay back a rabbi. And Hashem said, If I hear one more word, I will destroy the world. I will turn it into water. Why did Rabbi Shmuel and Gadol deserve to die such a terrible painful death and that his face should be stuffed and be on the mantle of this of this princess this Russia what did he do and a few years ago I saw I found the answer in Rav Chaim Vital the Talmud of the Zaya of, of, of the Ariya Kaddish he wrote the answer of why this man why Rabbi Shmokla and God all the beauty was peeled and he died such a gruesome death and he says the following Rabbi Yishmael Kohen Gadol Hayegilgul Shal Yosef HaTzadik Rabbi Yishmael Kohen Gadol was the Gilgul of Yosef HaTzadik Ubas and the daughter of Belial of this king Haya Eshes Potifa was the wife of Potifa that the whole situation happened with Yosef HaTzadik and the wife of Potifa and we know and Yosef HaTzadik didn't do that era. She was the most beautiful woman in the world. He was the most beautiful man in the world. And in the end, he ran away from her. So what do you want from Rabbi Shmuel Kohen Gadol? And now we understand, says Rabbi Chaim Vital, why Rabbi Shmuel Kohen Gadol was the most beautiful man in the world. Because he was the Gilgal of Yosef HaTzadik, who was the most beautiful man in the world. So if he's a Gilgal of him, sure, he looks like him. As it's brought down in the Sefer Gugulim, that the Gilgal looks like the original. So, every person in this room who's back, let's say from a thousand years ago, a thousand years ago, whoever you were looked exactly like you look today. He wasn't dressed like you. He was dressed in the times of those times, but his face and his features are exactly, every Google you come back, you look exactly the same. You don't, your, your, your body doesn't change. And that answers one of the questions, what body do you come back in? So the Sefer Google says your body's always the same. Who am I going to come back like? Uh, the guy before me, was he 800 pounds? Was he 6'10"? What did he look like? Sefer Gugulim says he looked exactly like you look like. You're just in a different time, so you dress differently. But it's you. It's you, because your neshama 
is you, whatever that means. In other words, you look like what you look like because it's your neshama. So just take my word. So whatever you were here is exactly what you look like. Same height, same everything, no different. So Rabbi Shmuel Kohen Gadol was as beautiful as Yosef Atzali. So of course he was the most beautiful man in the world. So what did they want from him? Why did they peel up his face? Says Rabbi Chaim Vital, an amazing thing. And it's brought down like this. That when she saw Yosef, she fell in love with him because he was gorgeous. And she became sick. Why didn't she go to the party? Everybody left the house, right? Everybody left the house. Who was left? Eshish Potiphar. It was the birthday of Paro, I believe. That's why they went. Why didn't she go? So it says she was sick. Why was she sick? Because she was so in love with Yosef and she couldn't have him, it made her sick. So her friends one day said to her, you're Meshuggah, why are you sick? She said, Ish Ivri, I have a Jew. He is so gorgeous and I want him and I can't get him. I'm sick. And they said, are you crazy? A Jew? An ugly Jew? There can't be such a thing as a beautiful Jew. All the beautiful people are Mitzrayim. She said, really? You're making fun of me. She says, okay, tomorrow I'm making a party and we're gonna, I'm going to let you meet this Jew called Yosef. And she took a room and she put 12 seats around and she gave all these girls, these, these friends of hers, a seat and she gave each one an esrig and a knife. Because that's what they used to eat. That was their produce. They didn't have oranges. Right? Okay. And they're all sitting there and they're beginning to peel their esrig. You know, they're waiting for Yosef. And the major said that she took Yosef in chains and she put on his neck a brace because Yosef would never lift up his head that these women should see his face. Right? So she put him in a brace that he couldn't move right or left. He couldn't move up or down. His face was fixed like this. So he, so the women could all see his face. So the major says that when they brought him in, the girls that were sitting there peeling their esrogim, right, all of a sudden, they were cutting off the tops of their fingers. And there was such an awe of his beauty, they never saw such a thing, that their fingers were bleeding. So she turned around, Potiphar's wife, Asian Potiphar, she turned around, she said, you're making fun of me? Check out your fingers, you're cutting them off! He's so beautiful. And the Medrash says, that for one second, Yosef HaTzadik looked at Eshes Potiphar. And even though he had no choice because his head was in a, in a brace, he thought about her for one second, what he saw. And for that one second, he had to come back in a Gilgal and have his whole beauty peeled off. One second! He was forced to look at her, but he thought about what he saw. For one second, he had to come back and suffer the most hideous death that a person could imagine. And why did she have a right to look at him, to have his face stuffed, and to look at him forever? He gave her that right by allowing himself to think about her for a second. Now I'm going to really scare you. I'm not here to scare you. I want you to love Hashem. I'm not, I'm, this is not a, not a scare type. I, want you, I don't want to scare you. I want you to understand that this world is not just a simple little game. So, so, so what is he telling us here? What does Rav Chaim Vital? So Rav Chaim Vital continues and the Kavayosha picks up on this and this is what he says. And this is the scariest part. That when you look at a girl, boys, not only does, do you get her tumma, all her tumma goes in through your eyes into your soul, affects your prayer, affects your shalom bias, affects your nerves, affects your panasa. Okay, so I can do tshuva on that. I can get her out of my system. I can exercise it. I'll do tshuva. I'll fast. I'll pray. Good. But she gets your kedusha. 
When you look at that girl, in comes her tumma to you, but since you looked at her, her neshama has a right to take your kedusha. So now she's walking around with a part of you. And that's very hard to get back. So the Aisha's potifa, by Yosef looking at her for that one second and thinking about her, she got a part of him. She got a part of him. And he says with Chaim Vital that Yosef was, did not rest until he came back as a Shmokhan Gadol and took his part back. By dying in such a, in, in a hideous way. But she still got a piece of him, but she only got his guff. I'm going to blow your minds right out the door. And you can dance in your kitchen about this. How do we know from the Torah that this is what happened? From the Chumash. It's amazing. I was flying when I saw this. So now let's think about this again for a second. Yosef HaTzadik had to come back to fix, to get back the part that she took from him by him looking at her. Okay? Listen carefully. No, you dick. Boys, all those girls you look at, they have a part of you. You're going to have to come back and get it back. It's not easy. You need to do tshuva big time, big time, big time. It's very hard to get back. You have to come back. All those disgusting... And, 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 and the, the girls that you're looking at on the movies and these other places, these are, these are the avadim of the satan. They're, they come to this world to cause men to do averis. They are so full of tumah. They're taking your kedusha. That's what keeps them alive. We'll talk one day. We'll talk one day about a guy who was messing with a girl and the stories in the Avas Chaim and she was a Shindalad. All those women of the night, some of them are not even human. Some of them come from the other side totally. And they take Jewish neshamas left and right, left and right. And if a person looks at a girl, she gets part of your neshama. It's a very scary thing. But how do we know this from the Chumash? You read there was nobody in the house. She caught hold of his garment. Lay with me. He left his clothing in her hand. What does that mean? He left his clothing in her hand. He left part of his chitzayni eyes in her hand. Because he looked at her, she got a part of him. The Ferish Apostle Chomish says, Rav Chaim He ran away? Did he get away without leaving anything? He, he, he didn't do the Avera. He ran away. He didn't do the Avera. What do you mean? He left something in her hand. Says Rav Chaim He left part of his Nisham in her hand because he thought about her for a second. And that's why the Terry says, Vayadai big da biyadai, Vayanas, Vayetse achutsa. Vayiki ker oisa ki oda big da biyadai, Vayanas achutsa. When she realized that she had a part of him, she realized, I got a part of him, he looked at me. She ran outside, she said, now I can take him down. If he would have ran away and he wouldn't have looked at me at all, then I wouldn't have been able to take him down. But, but he, I got a part of him, he looked at me. Every girl you look at, Every picture you look at, every filthy thing you look at, they get a part of you. And you gotta come back and get that part back. And that's a very painful situation. So you need to do tshuva now, while you can, so that they have no part of you. And he says, and he says, Taka, Batanach Bigdoy Etzla, 
She took his chitzainia, she took this big day, this, this part that she got from Yosef. She took it and she put it next to her. And Yosef couldn't get it back. It's an ugly word of Chaim Vital. And he suffered until he came back as a Vishmol Kohen Gadol. He couldn't get it back. And by suffering that, that Misa that he suffered, she got to take his chitzainias, his face, his goof, she got to take it and to keep it. He got back the whole Yosef HaTzadik, and that was a tikkun of Yosef HaTzadik. It's Rav Chaim Vital. Watch your eyes, boys. Have a good week. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.